Would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 6? We started this series, Resurrecting You, and it came out of Romans 6 that the resurrected king is resurrecting you. That's not just a song, that's actually the the promise of the word. But in verse 15, Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. It's basically him saying, look, if that's what you got out of Romans 1 through 5, what I just wrote to you, go back and read it again. Because that is not, just because you have grace doesn't mean you keep going this other direction. Verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And last week we pointed out that we're all serving something. The only difference is some of us don't know it. Whether we're serving our careers, serving our relationships, serving God, we're all serving something. But thanks be to God, verse 17, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart. You wanna underline that, we're gonna come back to that. The pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And I am using an example from everyday life, which for in Rome, this was an example of everyday life. We, this is anathema to anything we would experience in Western culture. But in this culture, someone who had found themselves in debt and they couldn't pay it off, there were no bankruptcy laws. The laws were I now offer myself as a slave, as a servant to pay off that debt. Uh, it wasn't a permanent thing. There was a temporary, but the, it was a totality of it. So this is something in their everyday life. He's using a metaphor for them that they would understand. What benefit, verse 21, did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now, verse 22, you have been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin, most of you know this, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the word made flesh that dwelt among us, and we're so thankful for that. Lord, we take a moment today to to dig into some stuff into our heads that we pray will actually pour into our hearts. We ask for your truth to become alive in us today. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Does anybody remember, if you don't, that's fine, but the word we used last week, the, the evil desires word the, from Romans 6, 12, you're, you're carried away by your evil desires. That's your, does anybody remember it, just out of curiosity? If you don't, that's fine. Greek scholars, anyone? Who was that? The rock star remembers. Justin Love, the musician. We'll write a song about it. Epithumia was the word that that was. And evil desires is what is telling us the reason that we're slaves to sin is because we are carried away by our evil desires, our epithumia. Does this make sense to you? Now, here's the problem with that. When I hear evil desires, or if you've got King James, what do you think? Lust of the flesh, right? You think sex, you think alcohol, the the naughty things. That's the initial thought, but that's not the word. The word epithumia is basically an inordinate desire. An inordinate desire 
when it's put on the wrong thing, becomes an epithumia. That means food, sex, drugs, relationships, your work. When I put the thumia and I throw an epi on it, the inordinate desire, that's what leads me into what is really just addiction in our lives for the most part. The epithumia. Now, the thing is, I read you verse 17, and I ask you to camp on that because it says that we obey from our what? Our hearts, right? The way that we become slaves to sin is through the epithumia of us putting our desires on things that weren't meant to bear it. We desire it inordinately, and that's how we become slaves to alcohol, to drugs, to your work. And some people, you know, scientifically say, well, there's a, there's a hook inside of the drug. And for some people, a minority of people, that is true. But research has shown out in these past decade that the number one cause of addiction, whether it's alcohol, sex, whatever, is actually loneliness, not a, not a hook. The isolation of it. Now, when he says we're no longer a slave to sin, but we are now a slave to righteousness, I want to say to you, and I want to hopefully prove it to you, that the way that we become a slave to God is by throwing our thumia, our epi, on him and not on the world. That is as simple as that. We follow him from our heart, not from our head. And in verse, there's three, I, I see three things here. You might see more, but these are the three that we're going to camp on today. The, the first that I see in this, this path towards becoming a slave to righteousness. Because if you've been around the Bible and around church for any length of time like I have, how many times on a Sunday have you said, I'll never do that again. I've come to the altar call, at church camp, whatever. And then the next day, sometimes on the drive home, <laughs> I'm back where I started. Why is it so hard? There's a key here in what it means to obey from your heart. Verse 17. Number two, when you do this, when we show up with our heart, with our head and our heart, the wholeness of who we are, it makes us holy, holiness. That it leads to holiness, which means completion. Verse 20. And three, the beautiful part about this whole thing is I can't earn it, it's a gift. The wages of sin is death. That's the paycheck. But this is a gift and I can't earn it. Number one, obeying it from the heart. I want to show you a diagram. And actually, some of you guys might recognize this. Dr. Bassanio might. But back in the 60s and 70s, this was a normal thing you would see on the back of a gospel track. Now, for you young people, a gospel track. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a phone. Like, what they, had? they used to have these things, these pieces of paper, they called them gospel tracks. And it was the story of the gospel on it. And the, the hope was that you'd find it, you'd unroll it in the toilet paper roll or whatever, and, and you'd get saved. <laughs> that was the goal. Now, I'll tell you, there are people that actually have been saved, and there have been people specifically saved from this. And this train was, whether you know it or not, literally affects the majority of our Western thought as far as Christianity goes. Came back in the 60s and the 70s from this. And the idea is very simple. Fact is the engine of the train. Truth. The truth never changes. Tim says, true is always true. That's not bad. Not bad at all. And in the middle of that, the coal car, because in the in kids, again, back before gospel tracks even, Trains had to have coal cars because that's how they were powered was with coal. Faith is the power of it, and feelings is the caboose. Now, the reason that they put them in that order was that if you follow truth and fact, it's going to lead you on the straight line of what truth is, right? Because truth never changes. So I'm adapting to what is true and what is not true as opposed to uh, the definition, by the way, of, of a wise person is they adapt the, the truth to, uh, they, they say, this is my life, I'm gonna adapt my life to the truth. A fool is somebody who looks at the truth and adapts the truth to their life, okay? So this is, 
saying fact is this. Now, if I say I'm going to follow my feelings, my feelings some days are up and some days are down, some days are the middle, some days on all days, all the same, up and down all day long. Is this good theology? Yes, it's true. The reason I bring it up to you is that, uh, I think it was John Piper that says the beauty of a, of a slogan like this is the brevity, that's the virtue of it, and the peril of it is that it is incomplete. Because what does this say, what does it imply to me or to you? They, they would never say it, they don't even believe it. But it implies, and what is implied by it is that feelings are bad. That how you feel is wrong. That that is what is wrong with you. The fact that is the truth about God, but there's two sets of truths up here. There's the truth about God and feelings, the truth about me. That that's what I bring into this world. And last week, I'm gonna do a really brief overview of this because I want you to remember that at the core, the spiritual root system, TM. Um, Chip Dodd, I told you last week about this book. I encourage you to go get it. The Voice of the Heart by Chip Dodd. This is some work that he's done. He's a, a clinical psychologist, but he is a Jesus guy all day long. And what he is saying in his book is that at the core of who you are, the wholeness of who you are, if all of me is gonna show up to the Lord, all of me shows up here this morning as a pastor, that I have my feelings, my needs, desires, longings, and hope, that is all below the surface. That is all not in my head, that is all in my heart. Now, most of discipleship in America is head to head, transferring of knowledge back and forth. Not a bad thing, by the way. But we were created to have connection with each other. We were created with a heart. Your feelings, your hopes, your longings, your desires, they're not what's wrong about you. They're what's right with you. God made you with those. Now, why I bring this up is that somewhere along the line of feelings, needs, desires, longings, and hopes is where I get stuck and you get stuck. Some of you are stuck this morning whether it's an addiction to pornography, whether it's an addiction to your work, whether it's I am stuck and I can't quit this, I've tried over and over again. And it starts with your feelings. When you were born, any newborns in here? I know we got the Kelly baby. Like when he's mad, he's just trying to tell you he needs something. Now the beautiful thing with a baby is you're guessing, right? It's like, it's like I'm trying to put a fire out, like just pat it, like I don't know, just... Quit, it's crying. Is it hungry? Is it, is it dirty? Is it, but what's happening is the feelings are the only tool that that baby comes into the world with. They don't have any intellectual understanding, ability to communicate until later in life when their brain is formed. They start with their feelings. And what their feelings lead them to is what they need. And need, I'm hungry. Need, I'm alone. Need, it's dark. Need, my feelings are telling me, and it leads me to my desires. And that's where we get stuck as grown-ups. Because my need goes to my desire, and now I'm going to say that from this desire, I need connection. But I was rejected. I need relationship, but I was, I'm alone with it. And so now I'm going to find that need, the two basic needs in all humans, the need to matter and the need for connection and belonging. You can drill them all down to that. And when I go to food, when I go to relationship, when I go to control and to work, to try to fulfill the desires, I am throwing an epithumia on something that could never bear the weight of it. Are you following me? Do you smell what I'm stepping in? Okay. Because this is important if we get this. 
that the way out of your slavery is back in the way you came to it. Obeying from the heart. Intellectually, information, doctrine, critical, especially in this world. And by the way, when you say, because one of the dangers when I say go by your feelings is there are people right now, there are men dressing like women because they felt like it. They felt that that's what I'm supposed to do. I didn't feel right here. There are people who are choosing to lose and leave their children and their spouses because it didn't feel right. That's not the feelings I'm talking about. Most times, and Romans, you know this when you've done some of the soul work you've done, when they say, I don't feel right about this or I don't feel that this is right, what they're really saying is, that makes me angry or that hurts or I'm afraid. So what they, they're not quantifying it in the eight feelings of emotions that Chip Dodd has said are out there and some people say there's seven, some people say there's nine. I'm angry. I think that anybody should be able to marry anybody they want. I think anybody should be able to sleep with anybody they want. I don't like that. That makes me angry. I don't feel right about it. You, you see where I'm going with this? I'm not talking about that. I'm saying going to the basic core of who you are, that there are feelings that you were born with that are not what's wrong with you. They're what's right with you. And they are the tools that God has given you and me to deal with life on life's terms. Because we live in a Genesis 3 world. Sad things happen. When I close the book on sadness, and we Christians, man, we're the worst at this. Someone has died close to you. Someone will say something stupid like, well, God needed another angel. Don't be sad. They're in heaven now. You should be happy. And you're closing the book on sadness. And when you close the book on sadness, it's like a stomach virus. It's coming out one way or the other. Right? He gets it. <laughs> Faith of a child right there. When I don't deal with sadness, it ultimately will go back to self-pity. And self-pity is, I must be missing out. I, everybody else, I didn't get the memo. There's something wrong with me, apparently. I'm the one that keeps getting rejected. Self-pity is just a storyline that takes you and turns you into a slave of sin. Sadness, when I deal with it and I accept it, it's acceptance. Dealing with the five stages of grief, I chose sadness because it's one of the most common ones. We all know the five stages of grief. And one of it at the end is that I have accepted it. And you know what? Acceptance doesn't mean it's okay. You know, it's not okay that Uldine is in heaven because she's not with us, but it's okay. Acceptance is it's not okay, and that's okay. That's what acceptance is. One of the ones that I've put up here that, that I think is the most misunderstood when it comes to Christianity and to church are guilt and shame. There are two from the bottom there. The work that Brene Brown has done, the work that the church has done, we see a word shame and we immediately think that is a naughty word, that is a bad word, and we must avoid it at all costs. Now, when I say that, what I'm really saying it about is toxic shame all the way over into the impaired and the unhealthy category. The truth of the matter is, is that shame itself as a human, when I'm born, shame is not an unhealthy thing. It is, I am who I am. I, in the Garden of Eden, from the very beginning of time, there was a tree in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that tree said was, there is a God and you ain't him. And shame is just simply an acknowledgement of who I am. It's the acknowledgement of my need and I hate it about me, and you hate it about you, because we don't want to be needy. 
and the lie of the serpent from the beginning was you're not needy. You don't need God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is you figure this out. You decide what's right and wrong. You decide what's good and evil. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when I don't deal with it, it moves me into toxic shame, contempt. And I put guilt beside it because in guilt, it's a very similar thing that when guilt is not a bad thing, if I do something wrong to my wife, I should feel guilty about that. Now, guilt, when I deal with it and I feel it and I do my feelings. By the way, do you have an emotion or do you do an emotion? It's an important clarification, isn't it? When I do guilt, then that drives me to say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was bad. I feel the way that it made her feel. I don't want to do that again. And it ultimately leads me not only to accepting forgiveness, but to offer forgiveness because it leads me to empathy. The tools dealing with life's Reality on life's terms, this takes me to a place where now I can live in a place of forgiveness and I can live in a place of shame ultimately is just believing the truth about myself. There is a God and I ain't him. And if I believe the truth about myself, I'm, it's humility. I'm humble because I know I need him. I need my father. I can't do this on my own. I can't do this without you. Shame is And an unhealthy thing takes me back to this toxic shame, which is that if I can only do this, then it'll be okay. And you may do this and not even know it. Because when you're little, like these little peanuts over here, like when you're at that age, and the person that you're counting on the most, your mama or your daddy, and you needed them, you cried out, and in that moment they didn't show up. You needed them and they didn't arrive. You don't even know it, but on a visceral level, you're making a decision. And the decision is, if there's something wrong with them, then I'm in trouble because I need them. So there must not be something wrong with them. It's easier to believe there's something wrong with me. And toxic shame enters your picture for the first time at the youngest of ages. Guilt says I did something wrong. Toxic shame says I am something wrong. And as a child, you can't even, at the littlest ages, they can't comprehend death. They can't, they can't even get their mind wrapped around it. But you know what they understand? Alone. Isolation. Rejection. They feel that. And so what ends up happening at that age with many children, and many of you live with it to this day, is the feeling, well, if I could do this, then that will make them love me. Because again, there's nothing wrong with them. I'm five years old. If there's something wrong with them, we're all in trouble. But when I take that off of them and put it onto me, then it's if I can only do this, then I will be loved. If I can only do that, then I will matter, and then I will be accepted, and I will be loved. And in that, an epithumia begins to be applied to your work, to your relationships. That if I can only, if you're a workaholic, Somewhere in your past is a toxic shame story. Because you know what toxic shame does really well? It gives us the list. It gives us a program to work on. I can do this, this, and this, and this. And then I finally get to the top of the ladder, and I'm still miserable, and I'm still alone. I've sold 10 million records, and i got to go on VH1 and cry about it because it didn't work. I get to the top, and it wasn't there because what I was really trying to do was in a toxic shame moment, prove that I'm lovable, prove that I can be accepted. And you know what? There have been a lot of things done in toxic shame that have actually been good for our world. 
I, I was meeting with my friend uh, Jeff Schulte. I don't know if anybody know Jeff. He's from this town, so you got to be careful. You know Jeff. A couple years ago, and he was talking about our work in Haiti. And he said, you know, I think that some of that stuff that you're dealing with, you went down there to save these orphans. And what you're really trying to do is save yourself. I did it out of a goodness place in my heart where I wanted to help, but what I was saying was, if I can only do this, then maybe I'll be okay. That was the deepest level of it. And I gotta tell you, it took me a while to settle in with that. And by the way, when the Bible says, then your weakness, he is strong, there's a moment of that where, okay, even in that. But here's the beauty of it. You don't have to live your entire life trying to feed children in Africa or in Haiti or where even in America to try to prove that you're lovable. You can do this out of this goodness of the heart, which is what the second thing is, is that we're coming to a place where when I serve him out of this, then it's out of holiness and completion. I've met people over the years that have literally moved their families to India because they thought then they would be loved and then they would be accepted and they drove their families into the ground and they came back lonely and even worse because they didn't ultimately come to the place, which is what I wanna show you today. They didn't come. You need to come. We need to come ultimately with all of us, which includes our need of who we are. At the core of who we are, bringing the need to our Father And then he doesn't leave us. Like when I bring my need, sometimes when you bring your need to each other, people will reject you. That's probably happened even in this church. I've been vulnerable and I sold, told somebody what I needed and they walked away from me. And so I just begin to say, well, the need is what's wrong with me. But when I bring it to our father, the need, let me show you something. The need leads to his presence in my life, which ultimately leads to gratitude that I feel that, oh, he didn't leave me. I just told him everything about me and he didn't leave me and he didn't forsake me. It leads to gratitude, which leads me to love him, which then leads to obedience and sacrifice. Now, I don't know about you, but I spent most of my life starting with the bottom three. Love, obedience, and sacrifice. Just love him more, our songs. Love him more, love him more. But I don't start with the ultimate truth about me Hold all of me, because the truth about me is that I am all of these things, and I can bring them all to the Father, throw my epithumia on him, and he can bear it from us. We've seen it in our relationships. Some of us, I mean, I, I can speak from only my experience. I've, I've done more to my wife probably than anybody else combined to marginalize her, to make her feel lonely, to, as marriage goes on in 20 year span, you just begin to do things that you shouldn't have done. And she didn't leave me. So young people, when you hear somebody who's been married 23 years say, I love her more today than I did the day I met her, that's what I'm talking about. And that leads me to gratitude. I am so grateful that she didn't give me what I deserved. And that moves me into a place where I love her and then, man, I, what Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Obedience out of love is way different than obedience out of slavery. And sacrifice from that position. And I'm gonna tell you a story from the Bible that just sums this up so perfectly and so succinctly. In Luke chapter seven, there was a woman who came to Jesus. Some of you know the story. 
because it takes us to the third thing, which is that you can't pay for this. It's only a gift. Jesus was at a religious leader's home, Simon the Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee at his house, there's Jesus, and they're asking questions, and, and in comes a woman. It says she was of ill repute, which is probably King James speaking for a, a prostitute. We don't know that, but that's what it seems like it's saying. She was definitely known in the community as someone who was a sinful woman, sinful and she came in and she fell at Jesus' feet. Now, set the scene. When you guys have been around the Middle East, you know that when you're eating a meal there, you're all, everybody's sitting on the floor and they're all reclined at the table. It's my idea of how you should be. If you've been around my house, you know I'm not afraid to kick my feet up on almost anything. Jesus is reclined at the table and in comes this woman who fell at his feet and began to sob. And she is crying so much that he's making his feet wet, so she's just um, washing his feet with her hair, and everybody is getting way uncomfortable. This is way awkward. And Simon the Pharisee says, man, if he was really a prophet, he would know who she was. What kind of an idiot is this? And Jesus, it says, stood up, and listen to this. Don't miss this. It says, he looked at the woman and said to, to Simon. So imagine a woman on the floor. He's looking at her and saying to Simon. Now, I don't, my mind's eye, her head isn't even up looking at him yet because the amount of shame she must have felt, the amount of fear she must have felt. In that day, if you were caught in adultery like that, the punishment was death. And who were the ones that carried out the punishment? Religious leaders. She busted into the home of a who? A religious leader, saying that I don't want to live another day. I don't want to survive another day. I would rather die than survive another day like this. And she'd heard of a Messiah, of a teacher who said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for you shall find the kingdom of God. She had heard of a, a Messiah that said, All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. She came to him, hoping and believing, not even knowing, but hoping. And he said to her, I, I love this, he said to her, he uses the same metaphor that Paul is using in Romans. He talks about slavery, he talks about the one that owed this huge debt, and the guy forgave them both. And one of them owed 500 denarii, one of them owed 50. And he said, you know, which one loved more? And he said, of course, the one who owed more, who was forgiven of more, would love more. And the truth is, as you look at that and think, well, if I wasn't, if I wasn't a prostitute, if I didn't have all this, then maybe I can't be loved like she was or loved like she did because I'm not forgiven as much. But I would like to proffer to you this morning that the only difference between Simon and that woman was she knew what she needed and he didn't. There is nobody that owes less. We all owe that much. And the only difference is she came with her need and she knew what she needed and Simon didn't. And in our culture, the people that, that have the hardest time admitting that I need my Father, that I need Jesus, that I need you, each other, religious people and rich people, you're the worst. We are the worst. You live in the South, by the way. You know the most religious culture on the planet? Southern Christianity. The richest, if you went home last night and had a meal, you woke up this morning, went to the bathroom and pushed a button and it disappeared, you were part of the 1% of the world. We are in danger of not knowing what we need and leaving like Simon instead of leaving like her. She left with her need met that day. And you can too. Today. The way out is back in through the way you came. We're going to worship a little while longer. Some of you need to say, you know what, this thing that happened to me that my wife did or my 
husband, my father. It made me angry, but I've, not, I've depressed it down. I've never dealt with it. And because of that, I'm trying to meet my need in all these crazy, dumb ways. And church for you is the loneliest place on a Sunday morning because nobody really knows you. They might know about you, but they don't know you. Take that to the Father this morning. The sadness that you feel that you've never really expressed to Him. Are you like the woman that say, you know what, I'd rather not, I'd rather feel this pain and get it over with and move into the full living of holiness and eternal life. I'd rather live the life that He promised me than to hold on to this for one more day. It's risky, some of it's real risky. But as we worship, I want you to know that I'm gonna be available. There's several of us that are available. We'd love to pray with you. But come today, whether it's your work, some deep thing, and allow the Father to begin to move and to heal, to begin to move you out of toxic shame into humility, which is that your Father loves you and he ain't going anywhere. And you need him and you hate that need, but it isn't what's wrong with you, it's what's right with you. He wants to meet you in that need. You can come, all of you, your head and your heart, and obey it from your heart. Jesus, I give this, the remainder of this service to you. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to begin to move in our midst and our hearts today.